save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. To protect our beloved backcountry and wildlands, more than ever, it's going to take a citizen's movement. This is where the public and every individual comes in. It's going to take creative, attention-getting, and sometimes massive displays of public support in every state and country to make the message of protecting wilderness and public lands heard all the way to D.C. and the relevant governments. It also takes lots of little actions that add up to something big. Today, my guest is Will Rausch, Executive Director at Wilderness Workshop, an organization working hard to protect the wilderness, the national forests, and public lands in western Colorado, and is based in the Roaring Fork Valley, which also happens to be my backyard. Will has a master's in environmental science and serves on the boards of Earth Justice and Echo Justice. He is expert in understanding the impacts of recreation and tourism visitors into our wilderness areas and the impacts of development from something that sounds as simple as creating a trail to big oil and gas and how important it is that wilderness be kept from being overdeveloped for it to remain wild and be a quiet place for those who seek a communion with nature. So without further ado, welcome Will. Thanks so much for having me. It's, My a, pleasure. it's a pleasure. I've, we've been trying to work this out for I think a couple years now so it's great to finally catch up with you and I'm really excited about today's conversation. Same here. So why don't we begin with uh, just a little background on you and how you came to be with the Wilderness Workshop and the organization's mission. Sure. Um, Well, I actually grew up in the Roaring Fork Valley, so I'd heard about the Wilderness Workshop. And when I moved back here after um, going to school, uh, I, I knew I wanted to work on protecting public lands and Doing so in my backyard seemed like a really good place to start, um, and and so my uh, my first job at the organization was inventorying public lands for our wilderness proposal about a decade ago, and then slowly moved into more of our policy and advocacy work, working you know much broader than just a wilderness campaign on all our work to protect public lands and wildlife, um, and then. Um, took over as the executive director just about three months ago. Well, congratulations on that. You um, said something important there, inventorying our public lands and wilderness. What does that involve? Sure. So the the work there was uh, looking at places that might be eligible for protection as wilderness Um as designated by Congress. And, and so it, it meant going out and hiking and biking and driving kind of the, the edges and the trails of potential wilderness areas and um, making sure there weren't any incompatible uses. So I might run across a power line and, and then the citizens wilderness proposal would be adjusted to say, you know, we, we probably shouldn't include a, a power line in a wilderness proposal or, Hey, there's a, an, 
a trail on this map, um, is it actually being used uh, or has it been abandoned and is really no longer on the ground? And maybe we can expand the wilderness uh, proposal to include an area that maybe once had some motorized use but doesn't anymore. So uh, when you say proposal, that means what you're proposing to Congress to legislate creating a wilderness area. That's exactly right. The The way wilderness happens is that citizens, organizations uh, that know an area and, and care for it basically get together and and say we want added protection for this chunk of public lands. Wilderness can happen on, on any federal public lands, uh, and it's really the gold standard of protection, but it requires an act of Congress, which means it requires citizens knowing the lands and, and then going to Congress and advocating for their protection. So this is why, listeners, it's so important to know where you live and understand what's wild, where's wild, and participate. So, Will, this leads me to a question. The outdoor recreation industry has increasingly been playing a role in public lands conservation, most notably working to protect national monuments monuments, excuse me, that the Trump administration has gutted. What's the impact of this engagement in the broader conservation and public lands movement? Sure. I think that's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting. I think the recreation community has a a long history of participating in conservation. You know, one of the nation's earliest conservation groups, the Sierra Club, basically started as an outings club uh, of people who liked getting up into the high Sierras in California and then eventually realized that if they wanted to see those places stay wild and and kind of in the state that they enjoyed hiking and climbing in them, they needed to advocate for their protection. So there's there's always been, I think, a close connection between recreationalists, the recreation industry and conservation. Um, but I'd say you know, there was maybe a bit of a lull and, and now it's it's resurgent. So there's there's big brands like Black Diamond and Patagonia and REI that are um, advocating very strongly for protection of public lands, for protection of national monuments, wilderness areas. Um, and, and to your question of, you know, kind of what's the impact of this engagement, I, I think it's it's been substantial. Um, you've seen things like, the outdoor industry's signature trade show moved from Utah to Colorado because the policies of the Utah state government were directly opposed to conservation. And and those the recreation industry saw that as kind of a t- an attack on, on their business model, which is people getting out into public lands. And, and Utah was considering getting rid of some public lands, which means there's less places for people to spend time and and they might be less interested in, in buying the equipment to be out there. So it's the engagement has, um, I think, been great. It's it's helped advance the conservation agenda, and it's brought kind of new awareness and a new constituency to protecting public lands. Well, this that's great, but it it also you just highlighted two questions uh, for me. One is you know the reduction of public lands when a state decides to reduce its public lands, it goes into private ownership. And usually, from what I understand, that private ownership has to do with big business and oftentimes 
big oil. So why is it, tell us how important it is to maintain these public lands so they don't get sold off into state hands. Sure. So we're we're fortunate that so far there's actually been very little transfer of public lands to the states or private ownership. There's been a lot of attempts uh, from states like Utah, but but so far um, it really hasn't happened, which is great. Um, but um, if it were to happen, uh, it'd be very problematic because uh, unlike federal public lands, things like national parks, forest service, Bureau of land management or BLM lands, which are, you know, very open to the public state lands tend to be managed, um, exclusively for economic gain. Uh, that's certainly the case in Colorado, um, where, uh, less than 20% of state lands are open to the public and, and the remaining, you know, more than 80% of state lands are managed exclusively for um, generation of funds for um, education and, and other state funded programs. So well, they're. Um, let me let me interrupt a second. That brings me to the second question that a lot of our national forest lands and BLM are managed by the principle of, quote unquote, multiple use. Explain that philosophy and how complex or convoluted it gets in terms of administering these these lands. Sure thing. So you're exactly right. Both BLM and Forest Service lands are managed for multiple use. There's uh, laws passed by Congress that mandate that the agencies um, allow lots of different uses on those lands, um, everything from recreation, wilderness, uh, to oil and gas development, grazing, timber, mining. Um, Water and wildlife and fish. Exactly. Yep. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of possibility for uh, conflicts of interest there, right? Precisely. Yeah. And uh, and that's where kind of an organization like Wilderness Workshop, my organization, comes in. We're kind of in the middle of, of that conflict, always pushing for more ecological uses of, of the land. That, that doesn't mean no development at all, but um, it means where development happens, we're pushing the agencies to do that in a more sustainable way. Um and, and where there are really important places, uh, perhaps not to do that development at all, because uh, it's important to preserve those areas for wildlife, um, you know, maybe for recreation, protection of, of water. And what's the, what's the difference of creating these different spaces for like in recreation, such as hiking, skiing and horseback riding versus motorized recreation like snowmobiling and ATVing and activities like hunting and mountain mountain buying, biking. They're all different kind of uses and what is their impact on these areas while at the same time a wilderness workshop believes that, you know, the locals and visitors alike have a right to recreate on public lands. So how do you in wilderness workshop divvy this all up 
that's a that's a big question. I, I think kind of the most simple way to answer it is we look at the you know, the relative ecological benefits, the importance of wildlife habitat, and and you know try and figure out places on the landscape that really should see less human use, whether that's recreation or uh, more industrial development, um, and and prioritize protection for those areas and say you know it's this area is, is really important for say elk in the winter time. So let's, let's not uh, develop it for a ski area. Let's not allow um, winter motorized use in that area. So it's, it's really a question of kind of delving into the landscape itself and, and prioritizing different uses in, in different places. Um, so you're not just sitting in an office somewhere looking at a map and drawing some boundaries. Wilderness Workshop gets out there to understand what's going on. You do biological assessments. Do you do environmental assessments to help create this legislation to keep these places free of human use? Yeah, we're we're spending time both in and out of the office. Getting out on the land is obviously very important. Um, and then there's also lots of good data, uh, you know, previous mapping from our state wildlife agencies, from other nonprofits. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a mix of all those things. There's times where we'll hire um, ecologists or experts to, to do a study on a specific area so we can, can really understand what's going on uh, in that chunk of the woods. Um, and do you, like for calving seasons, do you sometimes seasonally uh, recommend closing off an area for a season? Like here in the valley, we had mountain lion that had cubs and a trail down in Carbondale was closed or elk calving season. How th- th- that these these seasons are critical. That's exactly right. And, and seasonal closures of whether it's a trail or restrictions on you know, when a, a timber sale might take place are, are a great management tool, you know, especially with regards to recreation. Key to that um, management tool is uh, enforcement and monitoring of it. So, unfortunately, our federal agencies oftentimes are understaffed. And so a seasonal closure is only as good as the monitoring and enforcement that goes with it. Sometimes that's been effective and and sometimes it hasn't been. Um, So you'll get kickback from the public who wants to use this trail that it's normally open and now all of a sudden it's closed and the recreationists get upset. Yeah, they get used to to being out there. and, And so I think education is an important part of that. It's not all of it, but there's, I think, a majority of folks who, once they understand why a place might be closed seasonally for elk calving, will stay out of it. There's always going to be some folks who will ignore that, um, but uh, education is a great way to help help those seasonal closures work. And then pairing that with, um, if it can't be from the Forest Service, there's been some local towns and counties that have stepped up and, and helped out with that monitoring and enforcement, which has been great to see. That's great, and um, that's great to hear. And also, Wilderness Workshop has wilderness nights, don't you, that are open to the public where you provide a lot of this education and, you know, help folks understand the reasons for what's going on. 
Yeah, every uh, for the months of January, February, and March, we run a series called Naturalist Nights in partnership with two other local nonprofits, Aspen Center for Environmental Studies and our local Audubon chapter. And um, we've got 10 talks that educate folks on a, a whole bunch of different ecological and environmental topics. Well, that's really exciting. So we still got a lot to talk about here, listeners. So stick with us and uh, Will and I will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Will Rausch, from the uh, Wilderness Workshop, which is a nonprofit organization located here in uh, western Colorado, Mother Roaring Fork Valley, which is my backyard. So, Will, we had a great discussion in terms of what Wilderness Workshop does and why in the first section. And we got a lot into recreation. So let's spend a little time talking about recreation and that like most human activities, it has impacts on the natural world and wildlife. Can you tell me specifically how these recreational use uses impacts the environment and the wildlife? 
Sure. Uh, so I think it's it can be surprising for some folks, you know, to think about having an impact just from going out for a walk or a bike ride or or a drive through the forest. Um, and um, you know, certainly there's activities like mining or logging that might have a, a bigger impact, but the cumulative impact of lots of people recreating is actually quite large. And and the way it happens is, you know, essentially animals um, are out there on the landscape and they're spending most of their time looking for food uh, and trying to build up as much fat reserves and calories during the summer. And then, you know, here in the, the West where we've got pretty strong winters, um, most of the winter they're essentially starving and losing weight and fat and calories. So you can kind of think of it as a, a budget and, and they're trying to increase their budget in the summer and, and then minimize their losses in the winter. And when a person or a dog goes by, um, they stop eating, um, or in the summer or in the winter, if they're sheltering, they'll stand up and kind of go on alert. They're basically wondering if, if that person is a predator and if they need to run away. Um, and so, you know, individually, one of those impacts may not be that great, but uh, it adds up over time. And so if, you know, say every 20 minutes, a, an elk has to stop eating for five minutes, over the course of the day and, and weeks in summer, that can add up to quite a lot of food that they're not eating and then they may not have enough reserves to make it through the winter or they may not have enough reserves uh, for their body to decide that, you know, hey, this is a good year to get pregnant. And um, so, so those impacts kind of ripple out um, through the population. And if you get too much recreation in a particular area, then, you know, the animals in that area have a worse chance of surviving a harsh winter, or they may just leave that chunk of land entirely because they realize they're not spending time eating. They're spending time being a little bit worried about uh, people going by on an ATV or, or on foot. So they, so, don't re- of- so they don't really habituate to this activity and say, oh, it's just another person walking by. You know, um, not very well. There's there's places where they'll do that. Um, interestingly, you know, along really busy roads, say like a highway where it's just kind of constant. Um, but a trail through the woods, they're they're never quite sure if that person's going to have a dog with them. Maybe the person will, you know, get off their bike and approach. Uh, there's there's too much unpredictability there. Um, and, and so they'll always kind of stop eating, stop what they're doing and, and, um, pause for a little bit to, to check out the people. So do you think this is an individual or a structural problem? That's a great question. You know, for the most part, it's more of kind of a structural and a management problem. Um, there's some people who, you know, maybe approach animals when they shouldn't. And, and I think always improving our individual behavior in the wild is a good thing. But to to ensure we can have both recreation and healthy wildlife populations, we need to have a kind of a well-managed recreational experience. And so that means um, 
you know, it's more of a structural issue. It means we need to do things like planning where we build new trails um, really thoughtfully and taking into account where important wildlife habitat is. Um, we need to, you know, maybe think about closing some areas entirely to human use at certain times of the year. Uh, so those animal populations can, you know, kind of have a break, have a peaceful place to um, give birth and, and raise their young, which is a particularly important time of year for them. So it's, it's more of a kind of a planning and a structural problem than. So uh, how, how do you go about doing that in terms of what wilderness workshop does and the actual work that has to happen because you need a federal permission or federal acknowledgement to be able to close these areas off even for a seasonal period yeah. of time so how does that work when you you, you you send in a proposal for this as we had discussed in the first section how does that work yeah a couple different ways you're exactly right that you know, this is all on federal land, so you need to, you know, basically convince the land managers to make a decision to protect wildlife. Um, and and who, one second, who are all these land managers? Let's let's parcel it out because it's there's several different agencies involved. You know, there's there's like the ski areas with private ownership. There's forests. There's BLM. There's public trails there's private land there's a lot of overlap here that's exactly right and it you know to do it best requires getting all those folks together uh you know in, in our chunk of western colorado the vast majority of those lands are are public lands which um can make that easier to get kind of more comprehensive change. We're working primarily with the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Um, but but private lands are really important. And so we'll often partner with land trust to, you know, either buy conservation easements or um, get landowners to institute, you know, more conservation-minded management on large ranches. Um, but, but on those public lands, the, the way it works is there's a number of environmental laws that basically mandate public participation um, that the agencies have to listen to citizens and to organizations like us. And so if, if they're proposing a new trail, then they need to go through a, a process mandated under the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA that says, let's get some comments from the public. So let's listen to expert um, testimony and and analyze a couple of different alternatives. What if we built the trail over here? What if we built a longer trail or a shorter trail? And And so the way we work is to engage with the employees that work at the Forest Service that are, you know, deciding whether that project should be built uh, and then to get the public to engage with them. So we educate the public on the issue and what the most environmentally, ecologically friendly uh, alternative is and and ask them to, to write or show up at public meetings to, to request that um, alternative. So th this is how important when you see that notice in the paper or on the radio, public comment, comment period is open for X amount of time. This is where this citizen 
individual community advocate and activists really need to step up. Exactly right. Yeah, our uh, our public lands are managed for all Americans, but if, if you don't show up and, and speak out, then um, your voice will be lost. Um, and our, you know, our website and newsletter are, are a great way to find out about kind of all the different things that are happening in our neck of the woods. We try and make it as easy as possible for citizens to participate, whether that's kind of drafting comments that they can then mail in or providing a, a thorough um, analysis of an issue and they can show up and, and talk to the land managers themselves. That's great. And your website is wildernessworkshop.org. And within it, you've got a whole lot of information from about it to the naturalist nice to even artists in wilderness programs to wilderness monitoring and habitat restoration and then community programs and then causes and events and ways to take action and join Wilderness Workshop. So, listeners, it's a really good website to go learn more. Even if you're not living in Colorado, uh, many of the western states here in the U.S. go through similar processes. So this brings me up to another question, Will. In uh, a lot of the western states, cattle ranching is a very big deal, and the cattle graze on public lands. So there's there's a lot going on, and we don't have to get into specifics right now, but um, or, or particulars of individuals or anything like that. But help us understand what the impacts of grazing on public lands, if if you can, to wilderness and wildlife. Sure. So grazing like a lot of other uses is one of those multiple uses that's allowed on public lands and and the way it works is if you're a a cattle or a sheep rancher um, with some private lands where you're grazing cattle you can also apply to get what's called an allotment on federal lands and that's basically like a lease you're renting those public lands to to graze your cattle or sheep Um, and that happens across the west um, and, you know, it, the impacts really vary depending on the landscapes. There's, um, in general, the, the drier, more arid landscapes, those impacts are much greater. Um, and in areas um, like the Roaring Fork Valley, where there's kind of a, a moister landscape, uh, that they can handle a, a bit more cattle. Um, so we're lucky that just because of our ecology around here, there's um, less of an impact. Um, it doesn't mean there's no impact. Um, and the ranchers and the federal land management agencies work together to, to try and minimize those impacts by, you know, setting an appropriate amount of cattle to be grazed. Uh, moving the cattle around is, is a really key way to mitigate impacts um, and letting some places you know, have a break from that grazing and does this also work in terms of the carnivores we have? We don't have wolves yet, but they could well be coming to western Colorado. But we do have mountain lions, and we do have black bears. So yeah. um, are, are mountain lions protected in Colorado? Do you know? Uh, 
there is a, a hunting season for mountain lions as there is for bears and um so they're they're not um an endangered species where they might be given you know full protection and there'd be no hunting um they're managed like all our wildlife in colorado by uh the colorado parks and wildlife which is a state agency and and they set you know basically quotas for how many animals can be hunted each year um so they're, they've got some level of protection. You can't just go out and shoot a mountain lion anytime you want, um, but they're also not fully protected. Um, and, and I just want to return, you know, to, to be specific on some of the impacts of, of grazing cattle. Probably the, the biggest are impacts to streams and riparian areas. Cows, like a lot of animals, like to spend time near water. And if they spend too much time, then they can impact the stream banks. Um, they also tend to bring weeds with them. And so that's another impact that, that the ranchers and the, the Forest Service and BLM are kind of constantly working to mitigate by pulling weeds and spraying weeds, trying to feed cattle with, with weed-free hay. Um, well, what about... Um like rodenticides and and poisonous things out there does that do you have a a part in that and not getting more uh poisons out there in our ecosystem you, you mean in terms of uh, poisons used for like predator control or well, everything you know to get rid of weeds um predator control um anything that would our state agencies might use that for? Yeah, we, we definitely push for them not to be using poisons in the environment. There's, um, there's some good alternatives around managing weeds where you're essentially in, enhancing the soil for native plants, doing soil amendments, uh, as opposed to um, adding pesticides to the soil for to get rid of the weeds. Oftentimes those are kind of used in combination where you might knock down the, the weeds initially and then just, you know, try and make it a better environment uh, for the native plants. Um, and and I don't, I'm not an expert for the most part. I, I think there's very minimal uh, poisoning of, of predators anymore in Colorado, um, which is great. That's just a kind of an indiscriminate way of, of dealing with predators that affects other animals and, and is not something we would support. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So the other thing you mentioned was Colorado Parks and Wildlife. It used to be called the Division of Wildlife, and it was under the Department of Interior USDA, correct? Or was it under U.S. Fish and Wildlife? Well, it's, it's always been a state agency, and USDA and Fish and Wildlife are federal. So it, it used to be a separate um, state agency and then the division of wildlife merged with the parks department and became parks and wildlife so isn't that kind of an oxymoron that parks are it are created for people and recreational use and visitors where wildlife is basically for wilderness so what I seem to have noticed locally is that parks seems to have taken more uh, attention than wilderness and wildlife I, since I they merged. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you're right that there's a kind of a inherent uh, or the potential for a conflict um, when you've got a, an agency managing both for the benefit of recreation and also for the benefit of wildlife. And I know that folks who worked at the Division of Wildlife, who you know now are part of Parks and Wildlife, were and probably still are somewhat concerned about that. Um, so it's it's definitely a tension that I think that agency is dealing with. I I do think some of our local um, parks and wildlife managers have been really good and and outspoken on the impacts of recreation to wildlife. So so I'm encouraged by that. But there's there's definitely a, a challenge there. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. So stick with us. This is L.A. Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Will Rausch, from the Wilderness Workshop, and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. 
And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World with my guest, Will Rausch, and uh, the Wilderness Workshop. And we're talking about the impacts of recreation and multi-use on wilderness and how we go about protecting large tracts of wilderness, wildlands, and the wildlife that lives within it, and balancing that with recreational uses in, in a valley here that has multi-uses. Uh, we have skiing, we have gas and oil, we have fracking, we have hunting, we have a lot of uh, outdoor recreation and trails. So uh, what Wilderness Workshop does is work together with the federal agencies and uh, understanding all these various impacts on wildlands. So, Will, let's get into a little more detail and depth of how Wilderness Workshop addresses the impacts of recreation. Let's start there, and then we're going to get into a little more about development. Sure thing. Um, so, you know, we're a policy and advocacy organization. So a, a lot of the way we work and, and create change is by working with the federal agencies that you mentioned. So, you know, for instance, up in the area around Aspen, there's um, a group of a whole bunch of different folks working on something called the Hunter Smuggler Cooperative Plan. And it was a plan to uh, get some prescribed fire back on the landscape, um, do some benefit for wildlife habitat, but also look at the trails in the area in just outside of Aspen and see if there could be some improvements made. And and as part of that, the, the mountain bike advocacy group is, you know, pushing hard for a lot of new trails and and some of those are appropriate and we think probably some of them have too much of an impact so a lot of the way we work is by participating in processes like that you know bringing um ecological science to the table having our members write in and say let's let's find a balance that works well for wildlife so it's it's really participating in all the different federal processes that uh, go into land management, um, contacting your elected officials, contacting land managers, showing up at public meetings, things like that. So once again, I urge our listeners to visit wildernessworkshop.org, their website, and look at um, the Take Action tab. And whether you live in Colorado or Utah or Montana or Wyoming, there are organizations there working in the same way as Wilderness Workshop to protect wildlands. And it's really important, as we said in the beginning, for individuals and communities to take part in this process. Because as Will said, if you don't speak up, your voice won't be heard. So um, you mentioned fire, prescribed fire. And over these last two years with climate change, um, We've ha- we've had severe drought here in Colorado, and then a couple of years ago it was Montana and Wyoming burning. This year um, it was also California burning, and um, so does Wilderness Workshop work with um, the agencies in understanding what wildfires, the impact of wildfires in these areas. Yeah, we work quite a bit kind of as part of our larger, um, you know, forest health work and um, 
work on climate change. For the most part, fire is a part of Western landscapes, and it's it's a process that's just as important for a lot of different plant and animal species as you know rain or or seasonal patterns. Um, and for a long time, uh, we've suppressed fire on the landscape um, for a variety of reasons, both to protect communities, but also to preserve trees for the logging industry. And and now as a society and our land management agencies, we're realizing that suppressing fire is, is not good for a lot of different reasons. Um, it, there's plant and animal species that depend on the landscape that uh, is there right after a fire. So whether that's birds that nest in trees that have just been burnt or plants that have a flush of new growth right after a fire and then the animals that that feed on that new growth. Um, It's important to have fire on the landscape for for wildlife, but um, it's not a question of if a place will burn, but when. And so if you suppress it for, if you suppress fire for a really long time, then when the fire does happen, it's likely to be hotter and more extreme. And that poses a threat to our communities as well. So we're um, working with the the Forest Service and the BLM to kind of help educate the community about the benefits of fire, the fact that prescribed fire is an important management tool. and And even that uh, when there's natural wildfires, it can be important to let them burn um, when we can do so in a, a safe manner. That's great information. So now this leads me into, um, you know, we live here in smack dab in the middle of the Aspen Snowmass Wilderness Area, the White River National Forest, and BLM land, we have cattle ranching, and we have multi-use of recreation, including skiing, ATVs, mountain biking, and hiking. So, are there good aspects of recreation, and um, do different types of recreation have different impacts? Because this is kind of a prime example. Jackson Hole would be one. Telluride would be one. Any place where you have all these things coming together, these multi-uses on, um, with wilderness areas, what are the different impacts and what are the good ones and what are the bad ones? Let's go into the bad ones first and then let's talk about what the good impacts are. Sure. So in terms of kind of the, the negative impacts of recreation, I think the, you know, wherever you've got a, a huge concentration of uses, that definitely creates a, a bigger impact. Kind of the, the more people, the the greater the intensity of use. So so ski areas have quite a bit of impact. Um, you know maybe the flip side to that is that it, it does concentrate the uses. So you've got an area that uh, ends up not being that um, effective for wildlife habitat because the intensity of use. But hopefully then that means there's other areas um, where there's a lot less people. Um, so there can be kind of a it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's good to concentrate uses and, and let other places uh, remain more remote and wild. Um, so you know, it sort in, of creates like a core density. It, exactly. Yeah. Um, but but certainly, uh, you know, the more intense the use, uh, somewhere like a ski area is going to have a, a greater impact. And, and wildlife usually just start to abandon those areas. 
Um, you know, so, in, in terms of different types of recreation from biking to hiking to ATV use, uh, the, again, the, the biggest impact really is the amount of use. Um, you know, lots and lots of, of hikers or lots and lots of ATVers is always going to be more impactful than just one or two. Um, you know, in general, motorized recreation can have a bigger impact. Um, those machines can travel over a much greater distance, so they're impacting a greater amount of habitat. And then the, the and area... Their no- and their noise. Yeah, exactly. The area around the trail that they impact is greater because the the sound carries further. Um, and then there's also, um, you know, other impacts. Snowmobiles especially can um, dump a lot of unburnt fuel um, into the snowpack. Um, ATVs have been known to, to start fires in really dry areas. Um, and, and then there's also the issue of, of danger when somebody gets out in the wild to recreate and they're from urban more urbanized areas we have a lot of international visitors here as do other places similar of these multi-uses and they're not necessarily prepared to to uh, encounter danger encounter wildlife or be prepared if things go wrong and what to do yeah, certainly there, you know, every year there's folks that need to be rescued or helped out of our wildlands. I, you know, I don't know if that has any more or less of an impact on, on wildlife, but it's, it's certainly kind of a, a management issue is how do you educate people about being out in the woods so that they both stay safe, but also so that they, you know, can be taking care of the environment. They're staying on the trail. They're not leaving trash. Um, there's lots of education for folks who don't spend as much time out in the woods as people who live around here. So that brings me to a a point that's rather important right now with our um, federal government shutdown continuing that the federal agencies and the employees are on furlough and not working. So that how is that affecting what Wilderness Workshop does here and and how it's, you know, the parallels across the U.S. Um, I read um, a report that Joshua National Park was opened and the trash and the feces was just ridiculous and now they've closed it it because of the uh, destruction that people are doing. So why do you, how do we deal with that added impact right now? Yeah, you know, I think the the Trump administration and former Secretary Ryan Zinke of the Interior made a really big mistake by saying we're going to leave our national parks open during the government shutdown, but with no staff there to uh, take care of them. And, you know, national parks tend to be places where there's a high intensity of use and a a real... um, variety of kind of knowledge about minimizing impacts to wild places in the natural world. And, and so it's important to have natural national park staff there to, to show those visitors around, to take care of the resources. It just doesn't make sense to, to leave those open during the shutdown with no staff to protect them, whether it's, you know, 
dealing with restrooms or ensuring that people are staying on trails, not damaging, you know, really important national treasures in places like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Grand Canyon. Um, And it also reduces the fiscal needs of the national parks because there's no way to be collecting the fees that would normally go back into these parks. Exactly. People aren't paying to come into the parks, and but but they're still using those areas. They're still having impact. So it, it just is kind of poor ecological, but also poor economic policy. So this leads me to sort of our last question. And um, it, it would be, you know, big development. So what's going on in this current administration and wanting to bring in a lot of oil and gas into public lands, even national parks, the Arctic Refuge. They're talking about Yellowstone and, you know, places like the Dakotas and the uh, ancestral lands and reservations. I know that's not your forte, but it is happening a lot more. So what does Wilderness Workshop do to help mitigate big development oil and gas and the impacts that it would obviously have on wilderness areas. Yeah. And, and really on not just wilderness areas, but all, all public lands, um, you know, wilderness areas, we're lucky. Those, those are protected from oil and gas. So it's, it's actually more kind of some of those other public lands we're most concerned about. And, um, there's a lot of oil and gas development in Colorado and, uh, within the geography we work on. So it's, it's, one of our very top priorities. Um, the, the Trump administration has instituted a policy of what they call energy dominance uh, to lease as much of our public lands to oil and gas companies as possible, uh, where once, you know, essentially there was the opportunity to, um, to buy oil and gas leases, you know, once a year for certain parts of our state. Now that's happening four times a year. Um, and they're trying to shorten the the public comment periods that go along with those oil and gas lease sales and development proposals. So we're monitoring all that, um, you know, asking the agencies for longer time periods for the public to comment and then um, sending in our, our comments asking for certain areas not to be developed, uh, you know, that this is a place where we might consider um, – litigation eventually if, if we feel like certain places were leased for oil and gas um, that, that never should have been leased. So if you start a litigation process, does that halt the development from um, proceeding while that review is in process or environmental impact statements? Or does big oil and gas continue to do their thing until the litigation has made a decision you know that it's a case-by-case uh answer i guess to that question it it depends on whether the judge you know would grant what's called an injunction and say we're not going to have any more development we've resolved this case or they might say you know we think some development can proceed while we figure out the the legal issues um, wow, this is this is just amazing. So once again, folks, um, my listeners, I hope you understand that what Will and I were talking about today is how important it is for the individual and the community 
to act together and take action from little steps that you can do by yourself to organization, um, activism, and advocating and being involved in what's going on in your state and especially here in Colorado and our valley. So um, once again, visit wildernessworkshop.org. And Will, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thanks so much. It's I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and, and you're exactly right. Folks can find more information on our website, wildernessworkshop.org. The best way to stay engaged is sign up for our newsletter. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so all good ways to stay engaged and find out how you can make a difference to protect public lands. And you can donate and join in the Naturalist Nights, join and become a member of Wilderness Workshop, and you can donate. And that money goes into everything we talked about today that Will and Work Wilderness Workshop works on. They work in a way for us in keeping our public lands uh, viable and wilderness. So thanks again, Will. Thank you. I, I appreciate the support and very much enjoyed our conversation. It was it was great. So uh, today we're out of time. So meanwhile, step out into your wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.